and welcome again to Fat Free Film. I'm your host, Joel Marshall. And I'm Kamala Lopez, and we're sitting here with Dan Ireland, who has a long and extremely varied career. Um, he's just finishing a feature. He was one of the founders of the Seattle Film Festival. Hi, and welcome. Hi, Kamala. Hi, Joel. Hi. Thanks great for being to, on the show. Oh, great to be here. So uh, one of the things I wanted to start with is this, the fact that when you were very young, you started the Seattle Film Festival and you ran your own theater. Can you talk, tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, um, well, I, I was a film fanatic, I think, from the age of five. It's one of the things that in my life I look back at and I never really had any control of it. It was something that that I think it was just inherently, I was, it was born into me. And then my mother saw that and then she discovered she had a movie partner because none of her other kids were interested. And, and so they'd stay home with my father and my mother and I would go off to movies. So from the age of five, I was going to see things that I normally shouldn't have gone to see. And my father was always chastising my mother for taking me to see things that were a little risque because I'd always remember them yeah. <laughs> and talk about them. <laughs> my father was horrified. <laughs> what were some of the movies that you saw back then? Oh my God, oh, HUD, when I was a little boy. I'll never forget that, I loved it. And my mother had a, cr whoever my mother had a crush on. <laughs> if it was Paul Newman, I saw Sweet Bird of Youth. Uh -huh. I saw, you know, every Burt Lancaster movie known to mankind, whether it was repertory or whether it was, um, first run and um, every Cary Grant movie that she could find. I mean, he'd sort of entered into a different phase at that point. At that point, it was charade. It was, uh, oh God, Doris Day movies. She loved Doris Day. Mm -hmm. So I kind of got weaned on a whole bunch of different varied kinds of films. And was this in Vancouver? Is that where you grew up? Yeah. I was born in Portland, Oregon, but they moved up to uh, Canada when I was five. Mm -hmm. My youngest brother is a hemophiliac, and Canada had a better medical um, system, and it didn't cost my father $100,000 like it cost him for the first six months of my younger brother's life to determine he was a hemophiliac. Wow. I would think that your, your perspective on the film industry is varied, and so you, I'm sure you have a lot of knowledge from different viewpoints within the film industry. Um, what Can you tell me how you ended up running a theater at, at this young age of, I think, what was it, 17 or? It was, it was actually 19. 19? It was 19, yeah. Um, well, actually, I'd worked since the age of 15 in a theater in Vancouver as a doorman taking tickets. And, um, and then when I graduated grade 12, I was 17. And they put me on as an assistant manager. I got a job as an assistant manager very quickly promoted to being a manager. And within a year and a half, I knew it was like a nowhere job. That I would, if I wanted to, I could have done it for the rest of my life. But I had this ambition that I wanted to have my own movie theater. And so my best friend and myself, uh, Daryl McDonald, who now runs the Palm Springs Film Festival, um, went on search for a theater. And because I was American by birth, um, I went down to Seattle and we looked around there and we found this amazing theater 
that was really not being utilized at all except for rock concerts. And what was that? The Moore Egyptian Theater, right? It was actually the Moore. We, cha we, we changed it into the Moore Egyptian because mm -hmm. we wanted to give it a theatrical name. Mm -hmm. um, Is that relating to the Egyptian Theater that's down here in Hollywood at all? Well, actually, we were going to call it the Moore Chinese until we walked in and took a look around and we thought, we can put an Egyptian motif in here because there's nothing Egyptian about the theater whatsoever. Mm -hmm. But we really wanted to give it a Hollywood kind of spin in Seattle. And we were, we were uh, very theatrical kids. And what was that theater? You said it was for rock shows at the time, but what was the history of that theater? Was it, it was, yeah, it was really built, old at the time? Oh, yeah. It's the oldest standing theater. Uh, I think in the state and it was built in 1907 as a vaudevillian theater and it was um, surrounded by a hotel and because there was the Moore Hotel and they built this complex right in the middle of it and it's a 1500 seat gothic theater and um, all the touring stage shows would play there it started with vaudeville and it was one of the few theaters that survived the fire mm -hmm. in Seattle it was going, the fire went right up to Virginia and stopped right at Virginia, like, because it was on 2nd in Virginia, right before it stopped on 3rd. Wow. And so it was one of the few theaters that survived the fire. And um, amazing people played there. We would find posters from Nazimova, um, Valentino was there. I mean, it was incredible. Hmm. It was just incredible. So the th theater had real history to it. And it was really like this forgotten relic. And when we walked into it, it was, we were, we were both just blown away. And aside from, you know, the occasional rock show that would play there, it sat dormant. Hmm. And, um, and so we were fearless, young, stupid. Um, it really took a little bit of stupidity to- Is it really rough to run a theater even, you know, at that time, well, a one screen? theater house is it a difficult thing to do it was a 1500 seat theater so we <laughs> we had no idea how big the overhead would be mm -hmm. especially when it came to heating in mm -hmm. Seattle oh, yeah and um, there was a trick to the heating that we didn't learn until about five months into it which was a little too late when we got our heating bill <laughs> and it was like three grand a month which was yeah. back in 1976 that was um, a lot of money and we were doing repertory business and we made a splash because when we took the theater over uh, we decided that we were going to fix it up because it had really been run down and so we we didn't have the money to do it I borrowed five grand from a friend Daryl borrowed five grand from his parents so we literally had ten thousand dollars as operating capital and this was in September and we opened December and in that period of time, we completely restored the theater by posting notices all over town looking for movie freaks uh, that we couldn't pay, but we let them live in the basement of the theater. There was 36 dressing rooms. <laughs> so we had this whole community of people. Wow. We became great. this whole community of freaks mm -hmm. that would work. We, and we worked 24 hours. We'd work in shifts around the clock. and. We would uh, feed them and give them shelter, and we gave them the promise of a job mm -hmm. when we opened. And everybody pitched in. It was, it was amazing. One of the most amazing times of my life, I think. 
Sounds great. Now, oh. were there filmmakers involved in that? People that besides yourself that became filmmakers? No. Just all working for the theater. Now, what no. about the Seattle International Film Festival? How did that evolve out of this this situation? That was always in the back of our brain. I had when I worked with a theater chain in Canada, they had a festival and I helped them program it. So it was always in the back of my mind because I knew that there wasn't a festival in Seattle at that point. And, and so uh, I knew also it was a very competitive town for specialized film, mm-hmm. that if I had told people that we were going to do it, we would have been jumped. So we kept it quiet. And then I basically went around and booked the festival with Daryl through foreign contacts, through distributors in town, with the promise that they couldn't tell anyone. And they all agreed to it. So when we literally made our announcement that we were doing the first Seattle International Film Festival, they couldn't do anything about it. Otherwise, we would have been jumped by someone else. But that's how we got it by. And what year was that? 76. So now, I mean, I'm I'm uh, very interested in film festivals right now because I'm finishing my first feature, and I read Chris Gore's book, and your festival is is in his top ten. I don't know. Are you kidding? Oh yeah. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah, they're they're wow. Uh, along with Berlin and and uh, now the LA Film Festival is in there. Oh, obviously, great. Sundance. So he has a list, and basically what he says is, if your film makes it into any of these 10 festivals, a lot of dominoes will fall. One of them being, other festivals will invite you, so you'll avoid having to pay so many uh, fees. Other festivals will invite you, more distributors and potential buyers will be at these festivals than at any other venues. And um, there's a sort of cachet to being in any of these 10 festivals, so. What a, what a great honor. That's so, I love to hear that. I only did the first 11 years. Okay. I mean, oh, the first 11 years. <laughs> <laughs> the easy part. Yeah. Um, it, was, it was actually, I, I, I feel like I'm the daddy, though. Yeah, I feel like yeah. I'm one of the, you know, two daddies. And, and I go back now and it blows my mind because it's bigger than what It's one we of the did. longest festivals too, right? It I mean, is last the longest, four I weeks or some Yeah, that, long, that was huh? that was us. The great thing about it too that I experienced when I went there a couple of years ago was that every weekend you you're experiencing a totally different film festival because the movies are completely different than the weekend before and the week before and you know, it's like four weeks, right? Yeah. It it, it runs 3 weeks in a weekend. Mm-hmm. And we did it at first because well, it was the best time of year for us, and um, and to be quite frank, it was the time where we made a lot of you know money at that point. So any of our losses throughout the year of running a full time movie theater for, with a fifteen hundred seat capacity, with that kind of overhead, it kind of helped us get through. Mm-hmm. And the festival really brought a recognition to the theater. So by the third year. Mm-hmm. You know, we actually started to get a regular clientele because they trusted us at that point because they liked what we showed in the festival. Were there many film festivals at the time? Now it seems like every city has a film festival. Were there a lot of film festivals back then? The ones that we really paid attention to were uh, Filmex, which was here at the time, which no longer exists, but it was an amazing festival. 
really. LA had the prime festival. Filmex was brilliant. And San Francisco, which was ahead of ours, um, of course, the foreign festivals like Cannes, Berlin, Venice. We could never go to Cannes, though, because our festival was at the same time. So we were sort of, but it was not. No, and Sundance had just started, too, mm -hmm. um, a few years after ours. And then we helped set up the Vancouver Film Festival because we were both from Vancouver, and we booked it for the first three years. One thing, the one service that you were providing, it seems, was to bring um, films from foreign films in that maybe people weren't seeing. Um, and that was sort of what you were known for, is that right? Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, we really had a reputation for bringing in Australian, German, but especially Dutch films. And it was a country that no one seemed to have heard of. And I remember um, right before I left Vancouver, I had seen this film called Turkish Delight by Paul Verhoeven. And I was so completely blown away by it that when we started the festival, I had noticed that K.G. Tipple, his second film, was out. And uh, it was, I immediately got a hold of a print and we screened it, fell in love with it, and it was in our first festival. Hmm. So it was, our, it was our mark right at that point. And then it led to other Dutch filmmakers, like Fons Rademakers, who did Max Havilar, which we ended up being the American um, sales agents for. And we sold it, and we made the uh, producer a lot of money. Okay, now there's a transition. Yeah. You became sales agents. We did. Can you tell us about that? Yeah, it was for, primarily for Dutch films. And then um, a little film called Soldier of Orange, um, was our turning point. That was, um, nobody wanted it. Uh, it was rejected by uh, the Academy when it was put up for consideration for foreign language film. Filmex rejected it. Um, and so we got the American premiere of it. I invited it sight unseen, because at that point I didn't give a damn. I loved Verhoeven and I thought, look, even if it's a mediocre film by Verhoeven, I don't give a damn. So when we got the film in, when we got the print in, and we screened it that night, we just walked out of the theater staggered that the, I mean, blind sight of the Academy and FilmX to reject this movie. Why do you think they did? I have no idea. Because it was a World War II movie. It was a Hollywood movie with subtitles. And at that point, I think foreign films had this cachet that it had to be arty. And this was a very commercial, straightforward film, but it was brilliantly made and entertaining. And it was a great film. And the fact that there were subtitles on it was the fact that it was from another country. And I don't think we ever distinguished. So we didn't have any pretense of what was art and what wasn't art. If it was a good film, it was a good film. And Soldier of Orange just blew us away. And the distributor, the person that owned the rights, was a UK company. They had bought the rights, and they had cut the movie from three hours to an hour and a half, and they dubbed it into English and called it Survival Run. And we just said, there's no way we're going to show it. If you, if you insist upon that, we're not going to show it. But if you give us Soldier of Orange, We'll play to Soldier of Orange, and we did. 
and uh, and they were so impressed by the run that I phoned them up and booked it into our theater with the premise that if it did well, we'd publish the grosses in Variety and we'd act as their sales agent, which we had done with Max Havilar and had been successful. So they went ahead and they said, go ahead, you know, see what happens. Well, we broke every house record with the film and got five-star reviews from John Hartle and uh, Bill Arnold at the PI. And, uh, and that, was, that was it. Within five weeks, um, I sold the film for half a million dollars, which was the largest that any foreign language film had ever gone for at that time. Who did you sell it to? A company called the International Picture Show Company. They're not around anymore, but they did, when they opened it in LA, it won the LA Film Critics Best Foreign Film. So it, it, it did really well. It seems to me from hearing you speak that somewhere along the line, you managed to glean a great deal of sort of business information about the film business and how it works. I wonder, because you had the, the love of the, of the art form as, since you were a child, and then you worked in a movie theater, do you think that that had a, had a lot to do with your savvy? Because I wouldn't have known to publish grosses and variety and how that would affect, uh, I wouldn't have known that there was such a thing as being able to become a sales agent from being a film festival programmer. Well, what happened was, it was a little thing called survival. We had one theater, and we really had to learn how to, you know, get the word out there and then turn it into something that would allow us to survive. It's like any business that you have. It's, it's a great thing. You always go in for the art, but there's a point where you have to learn how to keep it going. And, and, and the passion is always what motivated me, always what drove me. But I got to learn that it was the business that kept us going. And so, and I wanted, also wanted to get the word out to the world of these movies. I mean, essentially, that's what a festival does. You get a film and you get to introduce an entire city or audience, who, whoever comes to your festival, and you get to turn them onto that film. There was nothing greater than that. I love that. That was, that was such a joy. It was really what kept us going. It certainly wasn't about making money. And I mean, because we got by, by the skin of our teeth. I mean, I could tell you like horror stories of like the first two years that were really incredible. And, uh, and I look back and I go, I don't believe that we were that brave, that we had the balls to actually go and do what we did. And it was because of our youth, our fearlessness, and nobody told us we couldn't do it. If I had to do that today, I think I'd think two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine times, and then maybe call my analyst afterwards to see if I was insane. And I don't have one, but I'd certainly get one if I thought of doing it. Uh, so you worked as a sales agent, and then you worked in acquisitions, is that right? So it's like on both kind of sides of the... Yeah, well, what happened, what happened was that, um, you know, after 11 years of the festival, mm -hmm. I sort of got a reputation, our theater got a reputation of doing really incredible with films that no other theater in the country would do well with, like The Stuntman. Mm -hmm. We played Which it... Which I saw when I was a youngster. Yeah. And uh, it was one of the films that I remember from, you know, as a kid, and I'm sure I saw it because I was in Seattle, you know? We played it a year. Yeah. It played, it played at our theater for a year. Mm -hmm. So um, uh, 
it was it was something that Choose Me played for 27 weeks, mm -hmm. Alan Rudolph's film. Um, let's see, They All Laugh, Peter Bogdanovich's film, mm -hmm. played for 22 weeks. It played in L.A. It, it was successful in L.A. and Seattle. A lot of people would take their cues from us after they would always look to see what we were showing, and if it was something that we were breaking, um, they'd take a, a chance at it. And a lot of times they'd see the advertising campaign that we would recreate, and um, and they'd play it and they'd become successful with it. Mm -hmm. Like Cutter's Way mm -hmm. was originally called Cutter and Bone. It opened in New York, it flopped. We opened it in the festival, and then we did the premiere as Cutter's Way. It was a hit. Yeah, it was huge. And it played, it played forever. Um, Aguirre, The Wrath of God. Um, I think we had the American premiere of Aguirre, The Wrath of God. Isn't if, that the famous, the famous uh, Herzog film yes. where they tried to drag a boat over a hill and Kinski almost killed him? Isn't that Fitzcarraldo? Him? That's Fitzcarraldo. Oh, okay. However, but it is, the, you're right, it is Herzog and, and it was uh, going down the Amazon. It was about the Spanish yes, conquistadors. And, he, and they both um, were trying to shoot each other in the head with guns. Oh yeah, you didn't know. Uh, we had Werner there and <laughs> Werner told us the greatest story. Like it was like he went out on stage and said, well, you know what? I was nearly not here and this film was nearly not here because I'll tell you a little story. It was on the last day, Klaus had just had enough. He was sick and tired. He had malaria. He was like, he was just fed up. The whole crew were sick. And, you know, Werner was like pushing, pushing, pushing because he was, you know, driven to get his film done. And so Klaus had decided he was leaving. And Werner had the last shot of the film to do with the monkeys on the raft and the camera swirling around and he didn't have an ending without it and Klaus had the plane ready to take him and he was about to get on the plane and Werner got a gun from one of the crew members because they had a gun and he ran up and he held the gun up and he said Klaus if you get on this plane there are two bullets in the gun one will be for you and the other one will be for me that's option one <laughs> Option two is that we will stay and finish the film. They knew each other from youth, and Klaus knew. As mad as Klaus was, Werner equaled him, and Werner was not kidding. And so Klaus went, he threw his hands up in the air, and he finished the film. I mean, what are you going to do? I mean, and because wow. he would have killed him. Oh, he would have. There is no doubt in my mind. <laughs> and you know, and he told the story with such passion and humor. It was just. It was one of the most brilliant moments at the festival, and the audience. We had fifteen hundred people that night. That was the great thing about that theater is that we could pack it, like during a festival. Mm -hmm. I mean, we'd sell out. You know, and fifteen hundred people inside an audience and getting that kind of reaction. It's it's really it's amazing. Yeah, when I was up there recently, it was, I was amazed at how packed the theaters were for every film, and people were just so such avid moviegoers, you know. And yeah. We talk to people outside in the coffee shops, and they'd be like, "That you know, every year I come to this because I see things. I just go to whatever theater. I don't even know what the movie is. I just trust that it's going to be good because it's here." You know how we how we kind of got a bigger audience was, I was friendly with Kathy Kennedy. Mm -hmm. um, who did all of Steven Spielberg's films. Mm -hmm. And 
I guess she felt sorry for me. <laughs> and 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 because she knew we were a struggling little festival, and she talked Stephen into doing premiere like we did the world premiere of Raiders of the Lost Ark up there, wow. we did the world premiere of Poltergeist. Mm. People would just be astonished that we would get these films, and it was great because they could get away from Hollywood, and get a reaction, and without the fear of like you know the press and Variety or anybody on them. And so we managed to get that, and we ended up with the world premiere of Alien. Um, I got the American premiere of Road Warrior. So we really got to bring a whole new kind of crowd in there, a commercial crowd, and turn them on to the festival. And they started coming to see other things. So it was the way of educating people and expanding the audience. So when did you... um turn towards making your own films? God, well, I left the festival after 11 years because um, Bill Quigley, he uh, worked at Vestron, but he used to run Walter Reed Theaters in New York. And he would always watch what we booked. And he would book what we booked, like for his theaters in New York, if he didn't do it first. He'd watch what we do and then turn around and do it. And he got hired as president of Vestron Pictures and he phoned me up out of the blue and he said, look, I'm putting together a whole theatrical team and I want to do it differently. And I want to hire someone as the head of my acquisitions department, but I want to find somebody who's a really good film programmer and buyer and do it on a bigger level and do it for a distribution company. And the money was too good. The money was too good. And I'd starved, you know, I'd starved for 11 years. You know, I couldn't, you know, I was living on seven to $10,000 a year and at that time you could get by but it was just really painful and at that point Daryl was well equipped to do the festival himself and I was always there so I wanted to pursue that and and so I took it I moved to LA within three weeks of being on the job uh, he phoned me up and said listen also I didn't tell you but you can buy scripts too which means that you will be the executive in charge of production on our piece of the film, if it's an acquisition. And the first one I found was John Huston's last film, The Dead. And it was, uh, it changed my life. I got to be on the set. I got to watch John Huston direct. I got to see this amazing Little, direct his daughter too, right? Yes, it was incredible. It was up in Valencia. It was in a little tiny stage in Valencia that was a warehouse that had never been ever used as a film stage before. And, and I just was smitten. I was smitten at that point. And, and then I ended up doing, I think, 15 or 16 films as an executive producer for Vestron. And then... I got to a point that I was really tired of taking it on the chin for films that I wasn't really responsible for, that I didn't have control of. And I'd been on enough sets, a story came my way, it landed in my lap, and originally I was just going to develop it, help develop in, into a screenplay. And then I just finally decided that, you know, this is the one that I want to do. This is the one I want to take as my first film. And that was uh, The Whole Wide World, mm. what became The Whole Wide World. Mm. And um, 
And what, what year was that? 19, we shot it in 95, but I worked on it for five years before. Yeah, I mean, with Renee Zellweger and, and Vincent, Vincent D'Onofrio. Correct. Yeah, but it wasn't originally Renee Zellweger. It was originally Olivia Dabo. And uh, Olivia got pregnant right before the film was to go. And um, I had to recast. And, and then one day Renee Zellweger walked into the casting office and I was completely and utterly blown away. I mean, it was, it was a moment that I'll never forget in my life because I knew my movie was going to get made. And I knew that she was just going to be amazing from the very beginning. It was just, it was there, you know. And so, and I had Vincent as my partner. I mean, to have Vincent D'Onofrio on your right side, like looking after you and watching your back on your first film. And as an actor, he taught me so much about working with actors, about being a director, about not settling, about really just going for it and um, and always giving it your best. He was... Where do you think he learned that? Or is that some innate instinct that he has? Uh, it's, it's, it's in him. It's just in Vince. He's, he's like that. He's like that in everything he does. If At he that time, had he played a romantic lead like that before? Well, he did, he did do Mystic Pizza, mm -hmm. um, which was more romantic than our film, but not really. Mine was tragically romantic. You know, Mystic Pizza was like... And this movie is all about the relationship between those two. If you don't have that, you don't have a movie. It was a two-hander. Yeah. It had to work. You had to believe their chemistry. And... Uh, how instrumental was her manager, Sandy, in getting her in there for that audition? It was actually John Carabino. Oh, John, yes, yes. It was John yes, Carabino John that, Carabino, oh, so. he was so instrumental. I didn't want to see her. Exactly, because I remember meeting him at about that time, and all he did was talk about her and how brilliant she was, and nobody knew who she was. She apparently, if she hadn't done this movie, probably wouldn't have been in Jerry Maguire, because I think you helped facilitate that, isn't that right? Yes. Yeah, I did, actually. Um, Hans Zimmer called me one day and said, uh, who was co-doing my score with Harry Gregson Williams? And uh, Hans is a good friend that I'd worked with at Vestron. And, but Hans, at that point, had like really taken off. And, uh, and he was doing me a favor. And, but then he phoned me one day after he'd saw the film, and he, and he really liked the film. Uh, he said, look, Jim Brooks is looking for a girl for Cameron Crowe, for the film he's producing called Jerry Maguire, can I send him down to your editing room? And I was like, hell yeah. I mean, Jim Brooks coming into your editing room? I mean, it was, I was, I was completely freaked out and nervous, but Brooks came down, saw the movie, was like blown away by her. And then within a couple of weeks, Cameron came down, saw the film, and, and then they brought her in. And, and then they auditioned her without Tom, and then they brought her in with Tom, and then they brought her back again with Tom to make sure it wasn't a fluke, and then they brought her back again with Tom again to make sure it wasn't a fluke. And at that point, we were in Sundance when she got the call from Cameron Crowe hmm. that she got the part. But yeah, I was actually with her when she got the phone call. Wow. It was amazing. It was, it was like the beginning of her career and there we were in Sundance that's awesome yeah it's 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 incredible 
and um, I love her. I mean, she's just one of the most soulful, incredible people I've ever met in my life. And uh, I'll never forget that day when she walked in the room, ever. I mean, it was magic. And you, it's something that taught me about when I've sort of got this reputation of launching actors. Um, the young man in Mrs. Palfrey at the Claremont, Rupert Friend and Emmy Rossum, who was impassionata and got Phantom of the Opera. Mm -hmm. um, but I think the biggest one I'm about to launch is the lead of my new film. Her name is Jessica Chastain. And just the reaction already from what's happened from the few people that have seen my movie, including Terrence Malick, who just hired her as the lead opposite Heath Ledger in his new film, The Tree of Life. Whoa. Yeah. Can you wow. tell us about your new film? Yes, it's um, more different than anything I've ever done. It's based on a short story by E.L. Doctorow, Jolene, A Life. The film is called Jolene. It's a story about a young girl's life, a young abused girl's life. And we pick up on her at 15 after she's got out of her latest foster home and she marries um, a young man at 20 who's not really quite all there. And, um, but she marries him to get out of the uh, relationship and we follow her through 10 years, uh, five bad relationships, three bad marriages, and with a spirit um, and a heart as pure as any female character I've ever worked with. I mean, it's it's really beautiful. I'm just so proud. And it's the poetry of E.L. Doctorow. I mean, who I think is one of the greatest writers in America. I'm not sure if you've read Ragtime or Billy Bathgate. This is a short story. Um, well, Doctorow is, I think, 78 now. In his latest uh, novel, The March, I think he's he's up for a Pulitzer, if I'm not mistaken, for it. But um, this is from a collection of short stories he did about little vignettes of people across America, simple stories. And um, it's got all the simplicity of that, but try, try to take a 30-page short story and adapt it into a screenplay. And it's not like, it's, it's very different in the sense that it's not like a three-act film. It's really like five chapters in this girl's life. And when I'm doing a film, I'll watch something that will inspire me, you know, that will give me at least the feeling or how I want to tell the story or the rhythm. And on this one, I, um, I watched uh, Fellini's film, Knights of Kiberia because it was always, it was about a prostitute and it was about adventures in her life. And you know, Jolene is nothing like that. Jolene is much softer than Kiberia, but uh, there was a spirit in Knights of Kiberia that I just loved. And it's about a woman that's traveling through this landscape of men, almost, you know, being decimated, but managing not only to survive, but to keep going on. And there's this innocence that she retains throughout this journey and um, it's really it's a love letter to to women it's a love letter to this young girl who survived everything it's about a survivor but it's more than that um, it's it's hard to define because I'm still like I've just sort of given birth to it mm -hmm. did you do the adaptation as well I help the writer a lot um, 
Dennis Yaros did the screenplay, but we went through it a lot. I mean, I think any director always does that with any script you're about to approach. I mean, unless you have something that's sheer brilliance. And if you're um, a director that's worth anything of your own salt, you're always going to put your own take into it. So he was very generous in letting me, you know, come aboard. And I really wanted to infuse Dr. Rowe's voice in the movie. And because it was only 30 pages, it was really hard to draw dialogue from Dr. Rowe. But what there was, was this beautiful third person telling the story. And so I took that and, and with Dennis, we adapted it as her voiceover. So she's telling you her story. And, um, and you don't really understand it sort of flashback at the beginning, but it sort of creeps up to that. Right how, how did you find your writer? Well, actually, they found me. Hmm. Um, my producer, Riva Yaris, had gone to a reading of Dr. Rose um, at the University of Arizona when he was speaking, and he was reading Jolene. And she closed her eyes and imagined that she was that person and that character, and she was bound and determined to make a movie. And my film, Mrs. Palfrey at the Claremont, was, had just come out at that point and she saw it and she loved it and her best friend was going with my editor so my name just perchance came up and she had had a director already and things didn't work out with him so um, we had a meeting and she gave me the story by Dr. O and she gave me her son's screenplay because her son wrote the script and um, I just it haunted me it was something that lingered in my mind and you know and it's the thing more than anything that I want this movie to do is I just want it to linger in people's minds because it's got that it was that's what I got from it it was something that just kept coming back to me and I couldn't shake it so um I've been very lucky because that's kind of the reaction I've had from people. So how? Uh, let's just take this as a sort of case study of, of this film. How did you, did um, your executive producer put the financing together, brought you on board as the director? Did she have a distribution deal in place or are you doing festivals? How are you approaching? We're trying it? to get into Sundance right now. And uh, there's no distribution on the film we're meeting with. Um, um, one, there's two sales agents that really want to rep the film already, so we're meeting with them this week. They're actually coming into town. I just finished the film like a month, month and a half ago, so um, it's all so new. Um, she financed the film out of her own pocket, which is really incredible. And she is an art gallery owner, and she owns galleries in Santa Fe and Scottsdale, Arizona, and um, she's an amazing lady. And the fact she wanted to do this was just brilliant. I mean, to a filmmaker, imagine she said, I want every episode to be like a painting. And then she'd take me around her gallery and show me these paintings by Mota uh, and just intimidate the hell out of me. <laughs> and, and, but I had a decent budget. We made it for $7 million, which is the biggest budget I've ever had. And, um, and you know, and I worked with my cinematographer that I've worked with for four films, Claudio Rocha, and um, and that's how we production design. Um, Berndt Capra, who did Baghdad Cafe, mm -hmm. 
I wanted somebody that was really stylish. I wanted to do it sort of with a hyper-realistic quality, sort of in a way like Amadovar does his films mm -hmm. with bold mm -hmm. colors and, and palettes. And, and also, I also wanted to, to do it from her point of view, from her mind. Like the first episode is a little more hyper-real because it's from the mind of a 15-year-old girl. So I sort of, we use five different stocks on the film to really give it a different, every look, every, every episode has a different look, a different feeling. What stocks did you use? Oh, um, oh my God, we used Kodak and Fuji, basically, but we used the um, low density Fuji stock for when she's in the mental institution. And we used this, um, um, I think it was 98 um, Kodak for the first one because it's really sort of from memory and it's really saturated. It's really, the colors are like from like a lot of filters. It's yellowish, it's, it's from memory. And then when she goes to Phoenix and meets the tattoo artist, um, it's like three strip Technicolor. So we used um, this high intensity Fuji stock. And then when we got to Vegas and she meets Chaz Palminteri, um, we used this amazing Kodak stock that just pops colors. It was, uh, it was, it was incredible. It was so. That sounds beautiful. Yeah, no, it's 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 pretty gorgeous. It's pretty gorgeous. It, it looks a lot bigger than its budget. Who are the other actors in the film? Well, there's Dermot Mulroney, um, mm -hmm. Teresa Russell in the first episode, Frances Fisher is in the second episode. She's astonishing. She's my lesbian prison guard, <laughs> and wow. she's incredible. Um, and, um, and the third is Rupert Friend from Mrs. Palfrey at the Claremont, mm -hmm. who I love. He's brilliant. He's now playing the lead in Queen Victoria opposite Emily Blunt. He's gonna be, he's gonna be a very big start. He's so, he's so dramatically opposed to the role that he was doing in Mrs. Palfrey, where he was a very sweet character in this. He's just a drugged out New Orleans tattoo artist. Really? That, yeah, it's, it's very funny. Chaz Palminteri is in the Vegas episode, and Michael Vartan is the, um, is the nasty from Kansas that she ends up marrying. It's sort of the representation of like, you know, the Bible thumping middle America that Dr. R wanted to have a go at. Wow. Well, we can't wait to see it. Yeah, we're looking forward to it. I can't wait to show it. <laughs> <laughs> well, we um, are at that stage, I think, where we're going to do our film bites. Um, the film bite is essentially just a little piece of information for people out there that might help them in the future uh, get their movies made or something that will inspire them in some way. Uh, I'll start with one that I've just learned from you, and that is... <laughs> Uh, start with your start with your audience. I might be going kind of out here on a limb to say this, but event, you know you want your movie to be seen by people, and you do want them to enjoy it. So I think it's a good idea to think about and consider your audience and hang out with some audiences. Go see movies in the theater. Go see movies of the past and present. Find a theater that maybe shows some movies that are not the most current movies and see those classic movies with a group of people. See how it affects them. 
I know uh, one of the things about making a film is you never really know how, how good the movie is until you sit there and watch it with someone, whether it be one person or a group of people. Or how bad it is. Yeah, how bad it is. Uh, so that's my thought. I, I also started uh, my film career in a, working in a movie theater, and I think I learned a lot from that experience. What theater? Uh, Grand Cinema's Alderwood, which is no, no longer I there. <laughs> I know it. I went there. there. I saw Risky Business there. Oh, did you? Yeah, that's yeah. why. That's, we ended up playing at our theater. Really? We had Pope of Greenwich Village, and I tell you, uh, it didn't do very well. But uh, when I saw the movie, I'm like, wow, this is a great movie. Yeah. It was overshadowed by other movies that were playing at the time. But yeah. uh, that was something else. Well, I'll, I'll say that my film bite, which I also learned from Dan, um, is that no matter how crazy something may appear, if you have the passion and the drive to do it, do it because it will lead you down to other pathways that will open up to you. I mean, if you just look at Dan's journey, um, it, it started very small, but he just kept working and dreaming and opening up doors and being flexible and moving with the flow. And now he's directing his own films, which is, I think, what a great many of us want to be doing. So it's very exciting to see how everything has just unfolded for you. And in your wake, you've left such beautiful continuing projects like the Seattle Film Festival and this great theater and uh, um, exposing all these actors to their audiences. So I think it's magnificent. Oh, thank you. You know, uh, I always I always go by what's in my gut. It's really, it's, you know, it, it has to be in your heart and your head, but ultimately it's, it's your gut that leads you to what you're doing. And, uh, and I always follow it. If my instincts tell me don't do something, I now listen to them. I didn't before. I would always fight. I would always try to rationalize things and fight them. And I found that my life became a lot easier and my path became a lot clearer when I really would go with how I felt instantly. And it's the one true thing that I think that we have. And if you can develop that and, and really trust it and, you know, and learn to just go with it, it's amazing where it will lead you. And I've always sort of followed that. And, and I've done irrational things. But I've always done them with the purest of intention. So hopefully they turn out, and sometimes they do, and sometimes they don't. And, you know, but what you said is so true also, Joel, about, um, you know, always consider your audience. You have to. They're the ones that are going to be there to support the film. It's not like you're sitting on the set and going, oh, what will the audience think? But it's when you're conceiving and when you're in it, I won't do a movie unless before I do the film, I sit down and I think it all the way through, like from first day of prep right down to the premiere and thinking of what the poster will look like, the theater it will show at. And if I can do that and really do it, then I'll do the film. I know that sounds weird. But no, you've it, seen it's, it all the way. I mean, you I have to see, see it. How you wouldn't consider that at this point because yeah. you've seen that whole journey. I the whole in, journey. I know. I came in through the back door in, into filmmaking, but it was a blessing. It was a blessing. I wasn't ready to do my first film until I did it. 
And you know, a lot of people will go, why did you wait till you were 38 till you did your first film? And I was like, that was the time I was ready. And you know, and I had a world of experience behind me at that time. Mm-hmm. So, but you know, you, you just have to follow your passion and your heart, your heart is always, it has to be in it if it's not. I mean, that's, that's a given for me. I mean, it just has to be there. But your instinct too. If something tells you this isn't right, don't do it, listen. Even if there's money there or something, because when I've gone against it, it's blown up in my face every single time. I don't know if that's any help. I think that's very helpful. Mm-hmm. All right, thanks, Dan. I appreciate that. I want to mention, Kamala is now uh, also co-hosting Wired, Wired Science, Science on your local PBS stations every Wednesday night at eight o'clock. Check your local listings. It's um, it's a show that Wired Magazine is co-producing with PBS, and it really is um, science and technology and how it affects your life, and it's fascinating. I'm really pleased to be a part of it. Listen tonight. all right thank you so much and we'll see you all next week thank you guys thank Thank you you so much thank you thank you Joel